0: Hey there, it's Andrea. Before we start today's show, I have a super quick, exciting announcement to share with all of you. For the first time on Time for Coffee, we have a free giveaway to offer you. In honor of the season of giving that we're all immersed in right now, I am so excited to tell you that Time for Coffee has 50 Global Giving gift cards with $25 already loaded on them to give out to Java junkies between now and Christmas. In case you're not familiar with Global Giving, it's the largest global crowdfunding community connecting nonprofits, donors, and companies in nearly every country around the world. These gift cards will make wonderful stocking stuffers or thank you gifts or secret Santa presents to give your colleagues or your professors or guidance counselors, your mentors, your mailman, you get the idea. Even that cute guy or girl you want to get to know better but don't want to give them something romantic, at least not yet. The way these gift cards work is that you can redeem them by going on to the Global Giving website and picking any of the hundreds of different amazing projects Global Giving is featuring in countries around the world. Then your $25 gift card can be used to support any of these projects. And the gift card is non-denominational with a super festive holiday vibe. And all you have to do to win one of these electronic gift cards is to email me at andrea at time, the number four coffee dot org. That's andrea at time, the number for coffee.org. Just say, Hey, I'd love a global giving gift card. And the first 50 people to hit me up for one of these gift cards will get it in their email box on Monday, December 17th, giving you plenty of time to figure out who you want to give it to. Thanks so much, everybody. Happy holidays and enjoy the show. Hi there. I'm Andrea Koppel and it's time for coffee the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of Time for Coffee. And I am so excited about my next guest because this is somebody who, when we're gonna get into it when we start talking about his time as an undergrad who got both a Bachelor of Science and a Bachelor of Arts, and is today really kind of threading the needle across both the nonprofit and the data world. So if you're interested in either or both, you are definitely going to want to take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage, because it is time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Nick Hamlin who is a social sector data scientist at Global Giving, which is a nonprofit that connects donors with grassroots projects around the world. And we are going to get into all kinds of things about Global Giving in our interview. Nick, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go?
1: I am so caffeinated and happy to be here. This is going to be so much fun.
0: Yes, it is. I am so excited to have this opportunity to talk with you because, full confession, this is definitely out of my comfort zone. I do not know really anything about what a data scientist does. And so I guess my first question is, what do you do at
1: Global Giving? What is your, <laughs>
0: like, what are your job responsibilities?
1: Yeah, I I would say I help Global Giving use data to ask and answer important questions. And those questions could take many different forms. They might be, you know, kind of high level strategy questions to support conversations among our executive team about What should our strategy look like next year and over the next three years? They might be really low-level, precise questions about, is a particular donation being made on our website legitimate or not? Fraud detection is a really important thing that we have to watch out for, along with every other e-commerce platform. I might be looking into questions about the extent to which the work that we're doing is having an impact in the world. That's a really hard one, but that's almost what makes it so much fun to try uh, try and solve. So it, it can take a lot of different forms, but ultimately it all boils down to asking and answering the important questions.
0: So I did work in the nonprofit world. I worked for both Mercy Corps, a Global Humanitarian and Development Organization, and for the American Red Cross. And to my knowledge, they, at least when I was there, did not have a data scientist working for them. Is this kind of a new thing for nonprofits to bring scientists into
1: their space. Yeah, I think it is a relatively new thing. The whole field of data science is depending on who you ask, you'll get different answers. But generally speaking, it's about 10 years old. I believe the to- the term was officially coined in 2008. And so that's not a very long time, you know, when you consider how long the nonprofit world has been around or other industries like tech or finance or things like that. And so certainly in the social sector, but just more broadly as well, people are still trying to get their heads around, what does the term data science actually mean? And and depending on where you look, get different answers. But I would say, yes, it's it's true to say that there are relatively few data scientists who are full-time employees at nonprofits. There are some, and the number is increasing all the time. But there are also a lot of people who may not be full-time employees, but might be contract volunteers or have other relationships with uh, socially focused organizations that are doing similar roles in terms of helping them use data to understand their business and uh, how, to, how to optimize their work. So
0: you open the door to this. <laughs> what is your definition of a data scientist?
1: Well, I think... I, I tend to subscribe to the uh, one of the more common ones that's out there, which is a data scientist has to be a better computer programmer uh, than your typical statistician, and they have to be a better statistician than your typical computer programmer. <laughs> uh, you don't have to be you know, outstanding at both. Certainly there are people that are. I would not consider myself one of them, but you have to have a strong ability to bounce back and forth between the two. I think what I would add to that definition kind of the the third leg of that stool that's particularly important in my work, but I think is increasingly being recognized as something that's critical to success as a data scientist anywhere, is the ability to take both of those fairly technical topics and be able to digest them down into concepts and takeaways and summaries that can be easily communicated and understood by people who maybe aren't as close to the nuts and bolts of the analysis as you are. The notion of data storytelling I think is really, really important because ultimately at the end of the day, you can write the most amazing code in the world or do the best analysis out there. But if people don't understand what you're doing or aren't able to make sense of it, it's it's not really going to have the impact that, that you would want it to have. So I think it's about coding, it's about stats, but it's also about storytelling and communication.
0: Oh my goodness. And I can tell that you excel at both. You are just so articulate and clearly have a way with words, Nick. Oh, um, thank you.
1: That's that's very nice of you
0: to say. <laughs> Nick, take us into a typical day for you. What do you do? How does your day unfold?
1: So usually I get in earlier on in the morning and I, I know they say you shouldn't do this. I try not to, but I get sucked in. I, I usually end up working my way through my inbox earlier in the day, just to see if there's anything that it needs my immediate attention. But Depending on the day, I might be bouncing back and forth to a lot of different meetings, having calls with some of our external partners. We do a lot of collaborating at Global Giving. It's kind of at the core of the way we operate. So I may be talking to someone we're working on an experiment with. I might be coordinating with one of our cross-functional internal teams, working on things like understanding our impact. That's one I spend a lot of time on uh, that I mentioned earlier. If it's a less meeting-filled day, I will probably carve out a couple hours to write some code or do an analysis. The content of those varies a lot. It might be that I am doing some stats work to analyze one of the experiments that we're running on the site to determine where should we go from here. Might be that I am writing some code to improve our data pipelines. These are the kind of more infrastructure pieces of the site that kind of form the foundation for a lot of the tools that people like Global Giving use to access and understand their data. It really really does vary a lot from day to day, but that's part of what makes it interesting and what I enjoy about it.
0: You also have on your resume, which I have in my hand, <laughs> built the organization's ETL and self-served reporting analytics infrastructure. What is ETL?
1: Yes, uh, that's actually the data pipeline thing that I was just describing. ETL is uh, the technical, fancy-sounding acronym for extract, transform, and load. However, when I talk about our ETL process to external audiences, usually I will summarize it as: imagine like we have a bunch of little gnomes that are constantly running around and cleaning up our data. You can think of e- our, our ETL processes as our data gnomes. Every night we have things that happen behind the scenes that take all of our raw Hard to use, hard to understand data, reorganize it, clean it up, put it in a place that's really accessible and easy for staff to access and ask questions. And part of our philosophy on this is that while I'm the only person at Global Giving with the word data in my title, I am definitely not the only data person at Global Giving. I spend a lot of time working with everybody else on staff to make sure that they have the ability to ask questions of their data directly because ultimately they're closer to the specific problems and questions that they have than I am. And so if I can allow them to have a conversation with that data, so to speak, directly, rather than having to pull me in every time, that's going to make them more effective. It's going to make the organization more effective. It's going to make us more impactful overall. So we spend a lot of time thinking about how we can do that as best as possible.
0: As I said in the introduction to you, Global Giving is a nonprofit that connects donors with grassroots projects around the world. So, around the world's an awful lot of places. You mentioned. Yes, it you is. You mentioned that one of the things that you've done is to design a program such that you're able to measure the impact of global giving programs around the world. Can you give us an example of one of these programs that you were able to demonstrate impact
1: with? Yeah. So Global Giving's approach to impact measurement is a little bit different than some of the other approaches you might find elsewhere in the social sector. Because as you said, the organizations that we work with do pretty much literally every kind of social good work out there and operate basically anywhere around the world. Being able to capture that diversity effectively is really, really hard. And moreover, we at Global Giving are not experts in how to drill a well or how to build a school or how to run a vaccination program. So we're not going to be able to effectively evaluate impact along any of those specific areas. What we do instead is look at the organizations that are able to learn the best. Our philosophy is organizations that are learning are ultimately going to be the ones that are poised to have the most effectiveness in their, in their programs and ultimately create the most impact in their communities. And so a lot of our tools around impact measurement are actually tools around how we measure learning. And at Global Giving, if you come to our office in DC, you walk in the door, you'll see our four core values painted in giant letters on the wall. One of them is listen, act, learn, comma, repeat. It's this iterative way of learning incrementally. You're never going to figure it all out up front. So what you need to do is listen to your community, to experts, to your peers, act on what you've heard, learn whether or not that action worked, and then repeat that cycle and over and over again. So... When we're looking at organizations that are particularly impactful, that's that cycle that we're looking at. And I'll give you an example. One of my favorites is a a partner we have called the Solar Electric Light Fund. And they do work in uh, West Africa with what sounds like solar electricity. But they listened to their community and heard that, well, what we really are having trouble with is not so much electricity, it's, it's agriculture. It's getting water to the fields where our crops are being grown. Could you maybe kind of tweak your work a little bit and help with that? And so they acted on what they heard and set up a um, a pilot experiment in one of the communities where they took some of their infrastructure and redirected it from solar electricity over into an irrigation solution and what they learned from that is that that actually works really well in that part of the world and their communities really responded to that. And so in repeating that cycle, what they've now done is taken that irrigation work that started in one community and expanded it to many of the communities in which they work. That's one really specific example of the kinds of iterative learning that we get really excited about and we're able to capture through our relationships with our nonprofit partners on the site.
0: Hmm, That is so interesting. So one of the things that we learned and that Java junkies will learn who get to listen to the Espresso Jots episode that we just recorded a few minutes ago, Nick, is that global giving affords entry-level employees the opportunity to start working as fellows. And I see from your resume that you began working at global giving in 2012 as a pro-inspire fellow in operations.
1: What were you doing in that job? So there's a there's two different fellowships in that question. One of them is the Global Giving Fellowship, which is the program that Global Giving offers, as you mentioned, to give people who are excited about working in the nonprofit field a chance to test the waters. The ProInspire Fellowship is a little bit different. It's a program that's run by an organization called ProInspire, and they don't offer that specific program anymore. But it was geared towards a similar goal of taking people who were working in the for-profit sector like myself at the time, and transitioning them into a one-year test drive role in the nonprofit world. So that was how I got initially connected with global giving. I spent my first year working here on the operations side, doing all kinds of stuff, but mostly focusing on figuring out how we can make our disbursement processes, the, the tools and systems that we use to send money to all the various corners of the world as efficient and effective as possible.
0: Okay. So you just alluded to the fact that you were in the private sector before you moved into the nonprofit, or as others refer to it, the social sector. What were you doing in the for-profit world?
1: Yes. uh, So it's a bit of a career change. But in the for-profit world, I had been working as a reliability consulting engineer at a software company that made reliability software. So this is kind of like a technical management consulting role. Basically, I would go visit customers and help them get set up to track the reliability and maintainability of whatever product it was they built. And that could be anything from a cell phone to a computer server, all the way up to a tank or a missile. It really varied a lot.
0: And what was that transition like for you, going from the private sector
1: into the nonprofit world? Well, part of the uh, reason I made the switch is because I didn't really want to work on making missiles anymore. Uh, And I felt like there there had to be a role out there where I could still flex my technical muscles, but do it in a way that really made the world better. And so that transition was hard. I'm really thankful that I had ProInspire to help help me navigate that, but it was definitely a shift both in terms of the context in the work that I the work that I was doing, the culture associated with it, and the pay. I mean, it's definitely uh, you definitely get paid more in the for-profit sector, but for me the trade-off has absolutely been worth it. Hmm.
0: When you say you were tired of helping to make missiles, we should tell Java junkies that some of your clients included Raytheon General Dynamics, Boeing, and then I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this correctly. Is it Thales Netherland?
1: It's Tallis ah. I believe, if my accent is right. Okay,
0: Tallis Netherland. So let's flash back to yes. when you were a Java junkie at the University of Rochester. And we should tell our Java junkie listeners that you were a double major you got your Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering and your BA with Research Honors in History. Holy cow. <laughs> oh my gosh. We know what you were doing for four years while you were in college, for sure. Did you know what you were going to do with those degrees, Nick?
1: Not, not even in the slightest. All what I did know was that I really enjoyed both of those fields in high school, and I didn't want to have to choose between one or the other. And that's actually a main reason why I went to the University of Rochester. They were the only school I found that would let me study both in whatever way I wanted. And so that's a, that's kind of how I got into that. I knew I liked the technical, and I knew I liked the human, but I wasn't really sure how or if I would be able to find a job that would let me use both. I consider myself extremely fortunate to have been able to do exactly that. And so I was indecisive then and I have not yet been forced to be decisive now.
0: (laughs) So before I ask you what you did after you graduated, were there any clubs or extracurricular activities or fraternities or internships that you engaged in, Nick, that you realized after you graduated and got into the working world were actually beneficial to you and had helped you prepare for the working world.
1: Yeah, I'll mention two that were absolutely foundational to you know, my, my career to this point. I did a couple summers. I spent working in programs that are funded by the National Science Foundation. These are research experiences for undergraduates. They are a great opportunity to get your hands dirty on actual research work. I spent a summer working in Thailand and then the subsequent summer working in China on two different projects. And so the real world experience of having to carry out that work and do it in a foreign country. Was absolutely central to me being able to work effectively in, in a global setting the way I do today. The other one was my entire time at the University of Rochester. I sang in the all male a cappella group, uh, the University of Rochester Midnight Ramblers, uh, and I I would say that the things that I learned doing that make up about fifty percent of what I learned in college, and the other fifty percent came from my academics. Being effectively running a, an actual organization where we need to book gigs and create relationships and advertise and market and manage a team. All of those soft skills, I got those through that group and not through my academics. And so it was extremely valuable for me to have that. And I still use those skills every day today.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Do you still
1: sing in any groups? I haven't been able to do as much performing recently as I would like. I did, after I moved to Washington, spend a couple years as a folk music street performer on the National Mall, which was a lot, a lot of fun. I'm hoping I can get back into doing more of that in the near future, but not so much reason.
0: Mm, well, I hope you can too. That is one of the gifts that I don't have, and I have so much admiration for those who are able to sing. So keep doing it.
1: <laughs> oh, last.
0: Uh, Nick, as as you know, before we started interviewing, I said, hey, it looks like maybe you had a gap year because you graduated in 2009. And I didn't see anything in your resume that showed that you were working in a job until 2010. And you said, no. (laughs) Do you want to explain what you were doing after you graduated?
1: Yeah. So the University of Rochester has what I believe to be the best deal in higher education, where it's a program called Take Five. And the way it works is after you do your four years of undergrad, you can apply and get a fifth year tuition free to study whatever you want. And it is exactly as good as it sounds. And I know it sounds too good to be true. The only stipulations are whatever you study, you have to put together a program and proposal in advance. That program has to be interdisciplinary. It has to have nothing to do with your undergrad majors. You don't get any additional degree or certificate or minor or anything like that. And that's it. Within those parameters, you can apply. And if you're accepted, you get to do whatever you want. And your housing is
0: taken care of as well?
1: No, you got to pay for your housing, but at least there's no tuition. So for me, one of the really exciting things about the U of R that I didn't really get to do much with during my four years of undergrad is they have the Eastman School of Music. It's one of the the best music schools in the country. And so my take five year, I spent studying ethnomusicology at the Eastman School of Music. Ethnomusicology is kind of like the anthropology of music. You look at not just what the music is and how it sounds and how it's formed, but how it fits into people's lives and how people tell stories through music. It was it was the perfect kind of culmination to my uh, to my time in undergrad. So,
0: how did you get your first job out of college and we should also let java junkies know that one of the things that you
1: learned while you did your fifth year was to play the djembe. I did. And that actually, weirdly enough, was indirectly the reason that I ended up working as a reliability consulting engineer. The way it went down is that I was walking through the student union and there was a job fair going on, which I had planned to ignore. I got roped in by a couple of my engineering friends who had wanted to meet some of the companies there. I was not really interested in working for any of them, but they dragged me in any way. And so I'm wandering around and I'm woefully underdressed. Everyone is in suits, I'm in jeans or something. And I'm looking around and there's not really any companies that I'm, I'm that interested in. But there's a guy standing way off in the corner, and he's got a gem base this big West African goblet drum. And so I go over and I start chatting with him. And he's there trying to recruit interns for his dance school, which is another role I was not interested in. But we got talking about this drum. And he's like, oh, you know, do you know this song? And I actually named a song that I had just learned. So I was like, yeah, I do. Oh, do you want to play it now in the middle of this job? Yeah, 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 no one will care. Okay, so I start wailing away on this drum, totally disrupt the job fair. Everyone starts staring at me, and I stop. Oh, maybe that wasn't the best idea. But he's like, "That was great. You know, we're having a dinner at at, at our studio. Do you want to come?" I'm a college student at this point. I'm not one to turn down free food. So the next week, I go to this dinner and I'm chatting with people there, and I start talking uh, with one of the attendees, and I'm telling him about basically everything I've just told you about what I was doing during my undergrad. And he said, "Oh." I worked for this company called PTC. Do you want to come work for us? And I was like, "Eh, you know, not really. They had wanted me to go to this job in Minnesota or something. And I was planning to move to Pennsylvania, where my then girlfriend, now wife, was going to be in medical school. So fast forward, eight months later, and I'm in Pennsylvania, I still haven't found a job yet. And I get a call from the PTC recruiting office telling me that there's a job opening up literally a mile and a half down the road from where I lived in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. Uh, This is just the most dumb luck kind of situation that all happened because I disrupted this job fair playing the djembe. (laughs) But it really worked out phenomenally well.
0: Absolutely. One of the things that I try to do with all time for coffee guests is to Ask them before the interview if there are any questions or points that they think would be useful for Java junkies. And the question that you recommended, Nick, was why bizarre undergrad majors can actually be a secret weapon.
1: Oh, yeah. I think I mentioned this earlier in the, the espresso shots, too. I think it matters less what your degree says on paper versus what you're actually able to do. And when I tell people I was a a dual degree student in engineering history, I got a lot of weird looks about, why would you want to do both of those things? But having that diversity of experience has been so, so helpful to certainly my career success, being able to chew on the kinds of problems that I get to work on. And so I would say it's not the worst thing in the world. If you don't fit into a clean little box or know exactly what you want to do, if you have a bizarre undergrad major, that's the kind of thing that sets you apart from everybody else. and You can probably turn that into your superpower too, especially if it's one that allows you to access complementary skills. Having a a little bit of technology combined with communication and kind of human-focused social science world, that one-two punch has been extremely valuable. And I can imagine there's being a lot of other strange, non-traditional undergrad. Major, either combinations or even just single majors that uh, would fall into that category as well. Yeah,
0: for those mortals like me who only had one undergrad major for sure. And the other thing I would add, Nick, that was obviously apparent with both of your degrees is that you really were interested in those topics. And that is another big takeaway that I've had from now having done over 70 interviews with professionals of all different stripes that they recommend that Java junkies study what they're interested
1: in. Yeah, definitely. I mean, people, people in the past have used the word nerd as an epithet. I think it's a great thing to be a nerd. And you can be a nerd, certainly in technology. You no, know, I speak from experience. But if you're a nerd for art history or a nerd for anthropology or a nerd for playing the harpsichord, great. Be a nerd for that thing get really deep into the guts of it. Figure out how it works and make it your own. That's the kind of thing that really sets people up for success. I would say go figure out what you can be a nerd about.
0: So one of the questions, one of the other questions that I try to ask all my guests, Nick, is about the opposite of success. It's actually about either what they might call a failure or just a really tough patch that they hit in their professional life. We've all had them, whether it's a miserable boss or supervisor or challenging colleagues or just not really liking the job itself. Have you had an experience like that in your profession thus far? And if so, would you share that story with us and how you came through the other side? How did you gut it out?
1: Yeah, I actually alluded to this earlier, but I kind of glossed it over. So after I finished my Take 5 in June 2010, I moved to Pennsylvania and started looking for a job. I was out way out in the Pittsburgh suburbs. There was not a lot out there. And so from June 2010 through almost five or six months at that point, I didn't have a job. And I was freaking out about what I was going to do about that. You know, I had just come off this like undergrad career where I had been really busy and doing a bunch of stuff and I was like I'm working really hard, like I should be able to get a job, I should be able to get a job, I should be able to get a job. I didn't have a job and it was really really difficult. And I I struggled with that a lot. But I think the thing that got me through, it sounds trite, but I think it's really it's the case is like you just have to keep grinding even if it's you're not sure where the release from that is going to come, it will come if you keep grinding. And if you keep learning while you're grinding, the combination of those two things is really important. I certainly didn't recognize it at the time, but the time that I spent spent during those five months, five or six months when I wasn't working, I was catching up on a bunch of other areas that I hadn't had a chance to, to think about for a while during undergrad, or if ever. And those are the kinds of things that I've continued to figure out, found to be useful once I did get the job and and move on into my career. So there's, unfortunately, there's no easy way around that. And it certainly wasn't fun, but I'm thankful that it happened because it did set me up for success now today, even though it was really challenging. So how did you finally get that job? Oh, well, that was the the job that I got from the djembe. And that came about almost as a result of, like I said earlier, kind of putting yourself out there, even in kind of social situations where it may not be all that comfortable, but putting yourself in a position to get lucky. Had I not done that a couple months prior, I would not have gotten that phone call. And so I would say, if you're in that position and you are grinding away, figure out how you can set yourself up to get lucky. Because you can't control luck, but you can create the conditions for luck to happen.
0: Mm, Such great advice, Nick. So final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college, back to the University of Rochester, and do it all
1: over again but based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, I would tell myself to chill out. I was I was pretty busy during undergrad and I was really focused on doing my absolute best work. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think one of the things that I've had a chance to realize the further I've gotten on in my career is that taking a little bit of time for yourself to be mindful about what you're doing and reflect on that pays for itself many, many times over. I'm a big... Proponent of mindfulness meditation. I do it every day. 10 minutes a day, you don't need much, but I wish I had discovered that years ago when I was in undergrad. I think I would have had a much more relaxed and kind of peaceful experience at that point in my life. And I think it's maybe more effective now that I've discovered it after the fact.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. That is such an important thing to do to just settle your brain and help you to de stress. And it'll also improve your focus and your productivity.
1: Absolutely. It it certainly has for me. And it really, it truly does only take 10 minutes a day. I think it, I I have a hard time imagining a situation where you couldn't carve 10 minutes out of your day to put yourself first. It's, It's hugely valuable and makes all the rest of your time in those 24 hours more effective.
0: I had the pleasure of hearing Deepak Chopra speak a few years ago. And he said, if you're too busy to meditate once a day, you need to be meditating twice a day.
1: He's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of apps and things out there that can help make it easy for you. I use one to keep me on track. You don't have to go it alone. There's a lot of people who are going through that challenge too.
0: Nick, before I say goodbye to you, you very kindly have offered to connect with Time for Coffee listeners over Twitter. Do you want to share your Twitter handle with us?
1: Yeah, sure. It's Nicholas Hamlin, N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S-H-A-M-L-I-N. My DMs are open. I, I love talking to people who are excited about data science or social sector work or some combination of the two. So yeah, happy to be a resource if that's something people are interested in.
0: And you also wanted to give a plug for the Global Giving Learn Library.
1: Oh, yeah. Glad you reminded me of that. If you go to globalgiving.org learn, we have tons of content out there about what it's like to be in the nonprofit sector. We have resources for individuals, for organizations, for companies. I've got some articles up there about some experiments that we've been working on if you're interested in hearing from me directly, but that's a great resource for anyone who's interested in important topics in the social sector.
0: Nick, I wanna thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me, and the Java Junkie community. I have learned a huge amount and I have tremendous respect for you and the
1: career that you have built through sheer hard-working grit. Well, thank you so much, Andrea. It's been an absolute pleasure to get to talk with you and uh, good luck to all the Java Junkies out there.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you